You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. Thanks for listening. It's Tuesday, October the 19th. Now, rows about prize money and nothing new in UK horse racing, but please do not turn off as soon as I mention this because this latest spat between the National Trainers Federation, the Professional Jockeys Association, and the Arena Racecourse Company, ARC, is a very interesting one. It's a multi-dimensional one, and it has consequences for the future of the sport as a whole. Uh, Lydia Hislop is with me today. Lydia, what's happening here, and why is this a little more interesting than normal? Well, negotiations for the all-weather programme between ARC racecourses and the horsemen have broken down. ARC were... um, according to them and according to the horsemen, um, some members of the horsemen's group, offering more money in turn for nine race cards that modelling would widely suggest would have an adverse effect on field sizes in that period, but a positive effect on levy income. And this essentially boils down to uh, what should the future of racing be about? What, How should British racing be laid out? And the fact that there is no one true answer, it kind of depends on your perspective. The argument, to my mind, boils down to whether you're into the short term, look, more money, not sure how much or whether it's as much as it should be, but it's more money, or long term, keep our fans engaged in the sport by exercising some form of quality control. And clearly, it's easier to make the more money arguments than the uh, and arguing for more, for more races, but less e- easy to argue for less racing because it relies on things that are more difficult to define. And at this point improbably, it seems that the long-term argument has won. It does, for the time being. That long-term argument has been put forward by the National Trainers Federation. That's the way they would like you to, to see their argument and the way it's framed. They have not agreed with their fellow members of the Horsemen's Group, the Racehorse Owners Association and the Thoroughbred Breeders Association, who were quite happy to take the deal that ARC racecourses were putting on the table. We're going to hear from the president of the Racehorse Owners Association and chairman of the Horsemen's Group, Charlie Parker, in a few moments, who takes a different view. But first of all, here's trainer Rafe Beckett, who's part of the NTF National Trainers Federation Council. And I I put it to him, you've got £5 million on the table, Rafe, and you've blocked the deal that your owners wanted. Why? Well, we didn't act as a block. Uh, We came very close to agreeing a deal on Saturday night. The NTF had moved significantly with the PGA. It had moved significantly on the on the original offer. Um, as, as the ROA said, uh, they would have signed a deal long ago. This was a significantly better deal than, than uh, first appeared. But Saturday night we agreed, and on Sunday morning uh, the uh, ARC went back on a significant part of, the, of, of what, had been, what had been agreed on Saturday night. Both the PGA and the NTF felt that the deal wasn't that good anyway. It was opaque, a long way from being transparent or binding from ARC's point of view. And uh, despite that, we got very close to an agreement. But, but that's £5 million pounds that, that the sport is now not going to have. And yet the people who pay your bills, the owners 
said that they wanted it. How do you square that with your owners who said, well, our association voted to to take this deal and, and you've decided that you don't like it for reasons that are rather unclear? No, that's not true. Rupert was very clear in his statement after the, after the deal broke down last night. Arc were proposing an increase in race volume, in race volume during the winter or weather period in return for the additional prize money. Martin's been very clear that uh, Arc are much happier with 10 races of seven runners than they are with seven races of 10 runners. He said that to me a number of times. And uh, I don't believe that punters who pay for this sport are in agreement with that. I don't think anybody believes that. It suits, it suits Arc to have that deal. It doesn't suit the long-term prosperity of the sport. It doesn't fit with the long-term prosperity of the sport. We're heading in a direction that Greyhound Racing went many years ago, and uh, look what's happened to them. Rafe, a lot of trainers who you've been closely aligned with, John Gosden being the most prominent one who springs to mind, when talking about levy reform, have said racing needs to to show that it can help itself before it goes to government with a with a begging bowl, for want of a, a better phrase. And now government can just turn around and say, well, so much for self-help. You've just turned down five million quid. Well, I would say that uh, short fields, i.e. three and four runner races, in February and March, which would have happened under this deal, uh, under the BHA's own modelling, I would say that's self-harm, not self-help. So, Rafe, what's going to happen now? Well, first of all, this deal, once broken down, wasn't what Martin led us to believe in terms of prize money. You know, once it was spread out, nine race cards, you know, it wasn't going to be what he would have us believe it was going to be. That's the first thing I would say. Second thing I would say is this deal isn't. This deal, Martin says this deal isn't dead. It's not dead in my opinion. We've still got till Thursday night to do a deal. So um, the BHA are happy, as, as my understanding, to uh, to uh, have us continue talking, and we're open to we're open to carry on talking. We're you know, but this deal has got to be transparent, binding sustainable and for the long term that's the pja and ntf's position and uh neither of neither body believes that was the case with the deal as it was written so is it about having the same amount of races as there are and more money for those races rather than you you, you basically don't don't like the idea of added added races on the cards no i don't i don't that's not true nick i don't like the idea of short fields that's what i don't like personally and that's what the NTF and PJA don't want. All fields don't suit uh, the PJA, and they don't provide a compelling product. And punters want to bet on competitive racing, and the punter funds the sport. But isn't your first responsibility to your owners? We're not going to grow. We're not going to grow make the sport sustainable for the long term if we don't have comp- compelling racing with an average field size of, cl- of between eight and nine or close to eight. That provides a sustainable product for the long term. This isn't about 
the short term. But this deal, this deal was a short-term deal that had long-term consequences. That was our belief. Rafe, what does this say about the effectiveness or otherwise of the Horsemen's Group? Uh, the, the Horsemen's Group does a very good job, but the way the sport is structured means that the participants are up against uh, corporations and the participants all have their own businesses to deal with. We're trading horses or riding horses or looking after horses and that's our main occupation. In that sense, we are compromised when dealing with corporations like ARC or the Jockey Club. Rafe Beckett there. Lydia, we'll hear from Charlie Parker in a few moments' time. Um, quite notable the way Rafe just ended that discussion. Yes, it's interesting that it's ARC or Jockey Club racecourses, um, which, you know, wouldn't be the old-fashioned view of that, would it? Um, it basically it was suggesting that ARC and Jockey Club racecourses these days might have quite a similar approach. We'll come to that in a moment. I, I should remind listeners that Nevin Truesdale, chief executive of the Jockey Club, when I asked him this very question earlier in the year and I said, do more races necessarily mean more money? Uh, he said no. But let's hear from, from Charlie Parker. And the first question I put to him, given the, the complete sort of breakdown of communications between its own constituent parties, was um, that the, the, the horseman's group was, was really not fit for purpose. Um, it's, it certainly had its struggles. Um, and I think the that the makeup of the group and the constitution is, is probably outdated and, and um, our inability to negotiate properly and, and get get this proposal done is, is probably highlighted highlighted those those difficulties within it. Um, we've got uh, three of the five members were in favour but we couldn't we couldn't persuade the others. Um, and then you've got the uh, incredibly complicated way that that then flows through to the BHA as well. So, in my view, it's 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 a it's a structural racing issue as much as uh, anything else. Well, Rafe Beckett clearly is in in disagreement with the the stance that you've taken. He says that you'd have settled for an even worse deal. Well, I'm, I'm not sure what he's talking about. If he's talking about um, the compromises that. Uh, Martin, Crudus and Ark have been asked to make to their original to, to, to this proposal those compromises result in less races um, and less prize money so in in that uh, uh, instance um, we've ended up in a worse position for owners than we would have been if we had gone with the original uh, proposal this time if he's talking about the original deal that we were talking about six, seven, eight months ago in my view, and we, you know, this is an argument that probably can't ever come to fruition. But in my view, that would have made us more money as owners and stable staff and jockeys and trainers, because we would have been sharing in the gross uh, media rights that are were producing, which um, would have made, I, I believe, would have made a bigger contribution to prize money. So, in either case, I don't agree with him. I mean, what do you make of the central suggestion that this is short-term gain to the long-term detriment of the quality of the sport and it ultimately it'll just turn everybody off? Yeah, right. And so the proposal that we were talking about was to increase the number of races through November through to middle of March. Um, those races are on the all-weather um, and they would offer more opportunity for owners to run their horses and the prize money on offer would have been 
significantly more than we raised for today. It's an experiment. We would have seen what would have happened to betting uh, revenues. We would have seen what happened to the levy. And we'd obviously uh, um, you know, seen what would happen to field sizes, bearing in mind that according to the BHA latest stats, there's more horses in training today than there were last year or the year before, etc., etc. So we would have seen whether the experiment worked. We would have been seen as innovating. Um, the bookmaking fraternity obviously would have seen the, the impact on their uh, P&Ls and, and cash flow. And we could have moved on. If it had worked, great. We could have built on it. If it hadn't worked, um, the first person, the first people to squeal and say, hang on, this isn't working, would have been obviously the bookmakers, the media rights companies, and art themselves. Whilst we would have been locked in, guaranteed to be running for that money for the rest of 2022. So I find it incredibly frustrating that um, we haven't been able to get that point across. Yeah, apparently, Rafe says you could still get a deal by Thursday. Is that likely? Um, I, well, yes, it's possible. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, yes, it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. Uh, it's been a very, very long three or four weeks on this. And, uh, you know, we thought we had a deal on Saturday night and then we didn't. <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm, I'm loath to predict, Nick. But, um, yes, listen, the BHA are very, very, they, the door is very much open and they are trying to persuade the, 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 the guys to come through it. Um, so that that bit is sorted. Uh, um, if we can, as, as horsemen, we we you know get get to a position we're comfortable, and then obviously Art then have to have have to be comfortable as well. But um, so yeah, you never know. You never know. All right, Charlie Parker there, Lydia. This is a short-term experiment. If it works, great. If it doesn't, fine. What's not to like? Basically, we're in a situation where, at the moment, in British racing, more races does equal more money. But in in the short term, um, you know that that would appear to be great. You know, Rafe has made the point that it probably isn't enough more money as well that it, that actually flows through through to the sport, and there isn't enough transparency on the figures. And I would very much agree with him on that. Um, the figures that are being banded around by the likes of Martin Crudis, you know, I think that they would need um, some explanation and some justification as to whether the uh, extra money is is purely what Ark would um, would be uh, earning from these extra races, or is there an element of holding the sport to ransom over this in order to try and try and get your way? I mean, uh, what we need about about this to make this decision is more transparency, more understanding of what actually is involved. But ultimately, it does come down to that to that argument. Do you want you know <laughs> more money today? at the potential, and I would say very likely expense, of in the medium to long term, turning punters off. It's just more races. How is that, how is that, how is that innovation? It's not a, a groundbreaking idea in the way that it is being sold. So, Well, isn't the, isn't the innovation that it is a new way, it is a new mechanism by which to, by which to generate money, money for the sport? It's a non-traditional mechanism having multi-race cards nine and nine and ten race cards and martin will insist that, it, that it's at nine i mean martin credit's argument i think here would be i know about making money for race courses and i can pass some of some of that money on to horsemen and this is the way that i'm going to do it the national trainers federation don't really know anything about how to make money for race courses so why are they now blocking a deal that would make money for their owners 
and a deal that their owners want. I mean, it's quite hard to swallow, isn't it? If you're an ROA member and your membership have voted for something and it's been blocked by the NTF when it pertains to your prize money and the trainers are charging you umpteen thousand training, bill, training bills a year, it's, it's quite a bitter pill to swallow that, I would have thought. I think it depends on whether you're, you, you have the long-term interests of the, of the sport in mind. And, you know, Dave has made the point repeatedly there, and it's a point that I've made, other people have made, made as well, that the, the, sport, the sport's income to an overwhelming degree and wholly during the, the course of the pandemic is built on uh, punters being engaged and wishing to bet on the sport of horse racing. And we know from analysis of uh, field sizes and betting on, on, on smaller fields that, that that is not as healthy a return as it is, it, as it is to have uh, bigger, more competitive fields you know, up to a point. We all know there's going to be smaller field sizes. The question is, do we accept that? And does that have a long-term detrimental effect on the sport? My answer to that would be yes. Do you think there's an element of thin end of, thin end of the wedge fear here, the sort of a mistrust of arc irrational fear, when we're talking about 140 new races out of the 10,000 races that are that are run in the entire calendar? I don't think it's just um, ARC. I, don't, I mean, it, it happens to be this, uh, what Charlie Parker repeated called was an experiment, happens to be with ARC. But the idea that it would just stop with ARC, that nine race cards would, would, would end with that, that jockey club race courses, as Rafe mentioned, wouldn't be interested in also running nice nine race cards. I mean, this has huge long-term implications. I mean, the turf husbandry wouldn't be able to sustain uh, that kind of idea. So you'd be pushing more and more races onto the all-weather. I mean, we already have more than a third of our flat races uh, in Britain run on the all-weather. It is a fundamental shift in terms of what British racing means, done through the back door, done without any strategic long-term consideration of that. But do we think that all members of the National Traders Federation actually subscribe to this view? I'm, I'm, I no. think it's a pretty minority view, to be honest. It's one that where the, the sort of those who have pressed their view most uh, significantly have have won the day in terms of in terms of doing the deal. There's a, I'd say there's a lot of disgruntled trainers slightly lower down the, the, the trainers table here who are thinking, well, hang on a minute. I was looking for some nice prize money for my owners on the all weather over the winter. And do they not make the game go round just as much as the people at the top? Is, is there not a charge that this, this, this view could be seen as an elitist view? I think, I mean, I, I would argue that it is exactly the opposite. We are, we are, it's the most democratic view going out there in that it is talking about whether horse racing remains relevant or not to its spectators, its audience, its punters. And you know, if horse racing cannot continue to capture the imagination of its everyday fans, then it is going to start declining. And competitive, larger fields uh, over the years, the data proves that that, it, that drives punter engagement much more than smaller one-sided fields. So, but that doesn't that beg the question: Why are they doing this? I mean, under the under the auspices of somebody like money. Martin Crudis, so, yeah, but, who, but he was a, he was a uh, you know a high up in a, a massive global on, online betting operation. I'm presuming he's using smart data and betting analysts to work out how he's going to generate the most money that's what he's that's what he's there for that's what he's in it for they are a you know money-making outfit 
Um, I, don't, I don't doubt that it will make that will be a levy. I mean, as again, Charlie Parker mentioned, um, the levy board accepted that uh, over this short term period of this experiment, that there would be a net positive to the levy. And this, this is why, I mean, it's very easy to make this argument, the argument about more, more money, um, you know, more races, you know, jam today, don't worry about tomorrow. And it is far more difficult to land that longer term strategic argument. And my God, does this sport need a long term strategic argument? On to other news today. Yesterday on this podcast, when we were discussing the Robbie Dunn, Bryony Frost story and the leak of the 120-page document from the VHA to the Sunday Times, I suggested that in the coming weeks there would be um, quite a bit spoken, possibly from within the PJA, about weighing room culture. I didn't expect it to come quite as soon as it did. David Bass is the incoming president of the uh, Jumps Jockeys uh, for the Professional Jockeys Association, and he's issued quite an interesting statement, Lydia, as he clearly seeks to step up to his role. Yes, um, he has made the statement that there's lots of interesting things he said, um, some of which I have great sympathy with, some of which I'm I'm slightly more sceptical about. So um, he said uh, he doesn't think that this uh, issue, which is the um, ongoing um, investigations into allegations of bullying and intimidation uh, made by Bryony Frost against uh, fellow rider Robbie Dunn, and clearly uh, these investigations have been also leaked to the Sunday Times, which has resulted in the BHA referring itself to the Information Commissioner because they could not rule out that that leak had come from them. I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, I should stress that uh, that uh, Robbie Dunn, who denies all allegations. Um, has the the case would be brought under conduct prejudicial to the integrity or good good reputation of horse racing. So the issue that David Bass is commenting on is, uh, he says that I don't think it's an issue that needs to be blown out of proportion. Well, I very much agree with him. And I think it's very much in proportion from the sound of things. Because one of the things that um, concerns me about this is that there has been an, an attempt by observers to suggest that what we're talking about is heat of the moment, adrenaline-pumped post-race um, disagreements. And I, from everything that we know about the BHA and everything that I know about the sport and its processes suggests to me that it's very unlikely, and I would even state impossible, that a 120-page investigation will be based on that kind of thing. And that the catch-all charge, which is the biggest that the BHA has got, conduct prejudicial to the integrity or good reputation of British horse racing is about a bit of post-race handbags and also the length of time in which the investigation has gone on that suggests that it's a far more complex uh, arena than he said she said in the heat of the moment uh, after a race now clearly uh, the BHA have got huge questions to answer about the length of the investigation. I do agree with uh, David Bass if he means that when he says this could have been dealt with in a much quicker and better way. If he means that the BHA should have progressed the complaint to proceedings sooner or not, then I very much agree. And this is a endemic problem with BHA investigations. However, if David Bass means that this should have kind of been sorted out uh, quietly by a few senior jockeys in the weighing room, then I really could not disagree more. And there is a point where he says, it is sad that this has come out. And I really cannot agree with that. I think it can only be good for the long-term health of the weighing room and the culture within this sport that this has come out. 
I like the idea of David Bass as the president of the of the PJ. Though he's an independent thinker, uh, he he he's quite thoughtful, and uh, I, I sort of welcome his appointment. Really, I totally agree, and uh, he is a, a, a balanced and thoughtful man. And whilst I, I, it is clear that riders have a strong sense of camaraderie, there must be a really good support system in there at so many different times. The close knitness of of that environment, um, particularly to someone, anyone who might be different, um, I I think this is an opportunity for um, the weighing room to take a step back and think about what that looks like to someone who might be different to the to, to the majority. And you know, I'm, David Bassett said, you know, the weighing room was somewhere where you felt safe. And again, I mean, we're talking here as well about about an environment, and this is not the, this is not the jockey's fault. This is this is a um, this is a, a, a structural thing, um, quite literally in many ways, about how um, racing has evolved. But you know, these days the demographic of the weighing room is very different. There are a lot more a lot more female riders, um, and yet in order to access the equipment that they need to do their job, they must go into the male change room. You know, take a step back. In normal society, that is not normal. I mean, it is ridiculous that as a woman you have to you have to walk into a male changing room for anything really i mean there should be facilities provided that that that's not an obligation or or a necessity i can't really understand that at all and race courses have got to get on this i know the pja and i know i've spoken about about this to, to john holmes the chairman and paul struthers the ceo they have been badgering and badgering um the race courses to to, to do something about this well, that's, I, I know that something is underway. I mean, I, I know from, I mean, I'm a trustee of the, the British Racing School and the British Racing School and the National Horse Racing College have also contacted the BHA and race courses to say, to express their concern about this state of affairs, because obviously, clearly they also have um, a safeguarding responsibility for the young people who are still uh, under their oversight who might go to go to the race courses um, so they they wanted the race courses and the BHA to address this and I know that um, talks are, are quite far progressed and ideas are well underway um, clearly it's going to cost money I think the, the sport has to accept that but also I think what needs to be achieved within that uh, weighing room space is managing to bring it into the 21st century in terms of you know the equipment and the facilities that are provided to jockeys male and female but what you wouldn't want to lose is for it to become so sanitized that that uh, ability to gather and feel that camaraderie that so many of the weighing rooms speak so eloquently about and that david bass has mentioned in his piece you wouldn't want to sacrifice that completely in the pursuit of um, very correct, very understandable and admirable um, desire to make sure that um, racecourse facilities are fully up to date. So it's going to be quite a quite a challenge, and it needs to be pursued thoughtfully. But it is incredibly urgent. Uh, Lydia, just back to the the BHA and the fact that they've reported themselves to the Information Commission. Um, if they get slapped with a big fine, I mean, how bad could that be? I think it could be really bad. I mean, let, let's just start at the beginning. It, it is bad that the BHA cannot categorically rule out that someone within its, its a division of it, of it has not leaked this to, to, to the Sunday Times. And I, I find this, I mean, I find it extraordinary that anybody who has 
um, right, who is right-minded would risk uh, the fair hearing of a case as important as that. That's one. But two, yeah, they're risking a, a whacking great fine. And three, it means that there will at least be some transparency in that all the questions about the BHA's role in this um, that participants and the rest of the sport might have, they should be answered. So, you know, it's referred itself to the Information Commissioner, which is um, embarrassing. Now, in 2019, the former rider and trainer Harriet Bethel uh, was left fighting for her life after suffering some very serious head injuries in a fall. And yesterday, she completed an entire circuit of Pontefract Racecourse. Those of you who don't know, Pontefract is the longest circuit in the UK and has an extremely stiff uphill finish, uh, raising money for the Injured Jockeys Fund. And we're hoping to help Harriet get to her original target of £50,000. She has got way over halfway there already, and she joins me now. Harriet, how are you feeling this morning? And congratulations. My legs are like lead. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> well, it's great to hear you. It was it was great to see you yesterday as well. Um, it's such an uh, extraordinary story of personal endeavour. Um, for those who for those who aren't familiar, just 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 take us back to 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 what you had to go through. I can't exactly remember everything that I had to go through because I know I had to go through a lot before I even know about it knew about it if you get me i had to have like a talking of operations uh i had to have like a tendon lengthening operation on my left foot um so that the heel hit the floor first um because i'd been laid down laid down for so long it had it had shrunk so it needed to to be lengthened and then like i had a i had a craniotomy or cranioplasty as they they call it um so they put like a tiny plate titanium plate in the front of my head whilst i was in the wellington hospital i spent all of that six months learning how to walk again uh, i don't think i i don't think i could even stand up until probably like just a little bit before so that was like a massive achievement the Injured Jockeys Fund were, were by your side from day one, which is why you wanted to, to, to raise money for them. We talk about the IJF a lot. I wanted to know from you just exactly the way in which in which they have helped you and continue to do so. Well, yeah, so they, they were there at my bed side. And in fact, even whilst I was in the coma, I had like a sort of a dream or a far out dream anyway. I had lots of those, but um, I had a dream that I was on a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean <laughs> with the IJF. And um, it was near Spain, so not that I knew where it was because I was flat on my back. Um, and then, so then they sorted, when I left hospital, they sorted out all the kind of carers and physios and OTs and neuropsychologists and they've just been absolutely astronomic at sorting things out your your recovery has astounded uh, everybody who who has treated you everybody who who knows you um you obviously credit the IJF with a lot of that but clearly much of that has to do with your your own uh, personal journey and uh, and your determination how how do you feel within yourself now Harriet mm, yeah I feel okay 
um, I feel very proud about yesterday, but then, like, in my opinion, like, enough is never enough, and, like, I pretty much expect them more from me all the time. So it's just, it's just one of those things. It's like, you're just never satisfied. And when you're pushing yourself that hard, and and for for obvious reasons, and you know, you're as you say, you're never satisfied. Is it quite important to have people alongside you going, yes, keep pushing, but at the same time, manage your expectations, be careful, or do you just have people spurring you on the whole time? What's the right balance? Um. So my counselor, Lisa Harris, she would say that you need to sort of be a bit more measured about things and sort of not push, 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 push all the time, just like, I don't know, pace yourself and realise what you can can't do. And What you did do yesterday was walk Ponty um, and the smile on your face when you finished, it was just a just a delight to, to behold. A lovely interview with Chris Dixon on, on Racing TV afterwards. And now, as I say, I really want to help you get to to, to fifty thousand for the for the injured jockeys fund. Um, this is still realistic, isn't it, Harriet? Yeah, I'd like to think so. But hey, come on, let's do it. <laughs> we're we're going to try and help you do it for sure. Okay, give us the details. How do we how do we get stuck in? Um, so you can either send a check to me or Mum. In, up in Yorkshire, um, or easier still, is go to the Just Giving page, Harriet Dash Bethel. Okay, Just Giving, Harriet Dash Bethel, B E T H E L L. Wherever you are in the world, um, what Harriet uh, did yesterday is nothing short of extraordinary, and you've heard the reasons why the Injured Jockeys Fund have been with her every step of the way and have done an amazing job. Harriet, you've done an amazing job. Thank you so much for talking to me, and I wish you all the best with your with your continuing recovery. Oh, no, thank you very much, Nick. Well, it's Tuesday, and that means it's time for our weekly Bloodstock segment brought to you with our friends at Weatherby's. Now, one of the industry bodies with whom Weatherby's works most closely is the Thoroughbred Breeders Association here in the UK. And today's guest is the eminent vet James Crowhurst, who, as well as being a senior consultant clinician at Newmarket Equine Hospital, also sits on the TBA's board of trustees, for whom he's also their long-term a veterinary advisor. Now, the TBA yesterday published equine welfare guidelines for the breeding sector. These guidelines aim to complement the basic principles of horse care detailed within the UK government's codes of practice for the welfare of horses. It reflects the TBA's ongoing commitment to protect and promote the health and welfare of the British thoroughbred and to support breeders with the provision of educational materials to guide them and their employees on best practice. And James is with me now. Uh, James, why has this come about and why now? Um, well, good morning, Nick. Thank you. We, um, we've been following the Horse Welfare Board's um, progress and, and have contributed to that um, and their premise of a life well lived. And as you know, well know, they, the, the horse in training is quite a short part of a whole horse's life. And we were encouraged to um, produce some guidelines um, for or the horse before and after its time in training. Um, these are not a, an exhaustive list of how to do things. It's more aimed at um, perhaps new people into the breeding industry. Um, and they are there to um, add flesh to the 
to the laws that exist in this country, that's the, the DEFRA Code of Practice for Horses, which is quite sensible, but has not much detail. So um, TBA felt that we might be able to contribute um, to having a set of guidelines on welfare um, to help raise the already sort of very high standards that um, are on just about every stud uh, in Britain and, um, and and by raising standards and understanding um, for people and horses, then hopefully you lower any risks of, of anything going wrong. Um, so we have uh, had a committee that's been refining these over quite a, a period of time and then we've run it past several people on studs in management to see what they think and it's come down to a document that we are very pleased with and um, I hope will will help people um, to understand what we are expecting of people that own and look after horses before and after their training career. Where do you think the the key areas of, of potential improvement are in terms of in terms of horse husbandry and the breeding industry? Well, um, it's, it's a good it's a good point. I think that um, as a vet, more and more we're we're, we're learning to understand um, horses' behaviour and interactions with others. So, I think as we um, we learn more about that, we can contribute to. Uh, their experience of their life um, at stud during training and afterwards. So I think this sort of behaviour and environment the horses are in um, is particularly important, um, how to keep them with company, um, how to uh, understand their relationships with others. They all have a, a pecking order when you turn them out in paddocks, so there's always one that's the boss and one that's last and all the others know their place so i think as as we understand a little bit more about that we can improve um how to manage them in a way that they really like and you know a lot of people put a lot of effort into into doing that so that they're comfortable and um you know minimize changes to them and as you all know they like a routine horses really like a routine and if you can keep up that up then they're, they're usually pretty happy. Now, anybody who wants to, to have a, a deeper dive into this and perhaps is um, uh, developing a, a small breeding operation, there are there are five videos, aren't there, that you've you've released yes. today? Yeah, um, we 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 we've done these videos. They're quite short, and I think they're very good. Um, that they're the things that um, we think to start with people would like to to see and hear about. So. One is on moving horses, transporting horses. Uh, another one about the health. Um, I've helped contributed to one on, on condition scoring of um, adult horses. We haven't put the youngsters in that yet. Um, and uh, um, we've also included the older horse and how to look after them out of grass. Uh, so I hope people will find these useful. They're... they're they're done in a, a very good way, I think, and, and uh, we're pleased with them. Uh, James Crowhurst there. Thanks to James, to Harriet Bethel, of course, and please do help as we try and get her to, to 50000 for the Injured Jockeys Fund and to Charlie Parker and Rafe Beckett earlier in the programme. Lydia is still with me. Uh, Lydia, you have a tip for me. 
I do. It's in Yarmouth's 4.15 and the horses, wow, William, showed a slightly improved form for first time cheek pieces last time um, and I think can go on better today. Lydia, thanks so much. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again tomorrow. Bye bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.